Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 221. But most of the time, the security hygiene is, is, is lacking. And we find like a very common misconfigured applications which are potentially leaking or exposing uh, business critical data. And so we're seeing that they were operating in this state sometimes for years. Hacks like SolarWinds and Kaseya have brought the issue of supply chain security front and center. But what happens when the supplied software in question is the beating heart of your organization? In our second segment, we speak with Wakas Nazir of the firm DigitSec about the security risks of the ur SaaS application Salesforce.com. But first, the Biden administration continued its forceful diplomacy on the issue of cybersecurity this week with an announcement on Monday that named four Chinese nationals the U.S. says are responsible for a string of attacks on companies in the aerospace, biomedical, defense, healthcare, and manufacturing sectors, as well as attacks on academic research institutions in the U.S. The announcement was just the latest by the U.S. government, dating back to the Obama administration, that specifically called out and named individuals working on behalf of foreign governments. But is the strategy working? And what can companies in sensitive industries do to protect themselves from incursions like those mentioned in the indictment, even if they do know who's behind them? To answer these questions, we invited Andrew Sellers, the chief technology officer at Complex, back into the studio to talk about the indictment. Andrew previously led enterprise network modernization and design efforts for the U.S. Air Force. In this conversation, he and I talk about the limits of the U.S. government's name and shame campaign, and we dig into some of the techniques, tactics, and processes, or TTPs, used by APT-40, the Chinese Advanced Persistent Threat Group believed responsible for the attacks. Hey, my name is Andrew Sellers. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Complex. Andrew, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. We've had you on before. It's great to be back, Paul. I always love being on. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate the invitation. We started the the week, work week, with a uh, big news drop from the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security as well, related to some indictments against uh, Chinese nationals believed to be involved with a very widespread campaign of hacking. It involved Microsoft's technology and customers and was geared to steal intellectual property and trade secrets. What do we know about the attribution of this and who these individuals and organizations are? What I'll say just based on what's being publicly reported is there's been a lot of um, FBI and NSA and CISA and other cooperation and, and it looks like a, a lot of analysis of the TTBs believes that, you know, they've attributed this to a particular APT group, APT40, I believe. There is a difficulty in attribution in cyberspace that doesn't necessarily have a good, you know, analog or parallel in other kinds of, hmm. we'll say, international attacks or incidents that, um, you know, makes this a little bit hard. And so what I've read seems to be that there's a lot of observed TTPs that tie back to things that this group has done before. And so I imagine there's a lot, obviously, that the FBI and the NSA and others hold back for sources and, you know, and, and, and um, yeah. you know, protection purposes. I imagine there's a lot of human and traditional intelligence gathering that plays a role here and that we're just getting, in a sense, the tip of the iceberg in terms of how they came to this conclusion. And there does seem to be 
quite a bit of confidence here. Yeah. And in fact, we know that there was a federal grand jury impaneled to um, look at this evidence and they they passed down the indictment in May. Um, yep. We're hearing about it now. And there are, you know, for Chinese nationals, um, residents of uh, People's Republic of China who were charged and they're named. Um, <laughs> so this is, I mean, we've seen this in recent years, right? Which is the U.S. government has gone from kind of vague, you know, we believe China was behind this or we believe Russia was behind this to much more specific. And we saw this during the Obama and Trump administrations. You know, yes. these individuals did this operation. Your background is in the military and on the um, you know cybersecurity defense side, what types of information generally do you need to really be able to make that type of assertion of not only is it this country, but here here are the characters and, and, and actors involved in it? That that's pretty granular. I I absolutely agree, and I think that a lot of a lot of what you know led to that strong of an assertion, I'm sure, is something that is not going to be declassified. Yeah. And again, I imagine there's a there's a lot of human and traditional intelligence gathering that, that plays a role in that. But yeah. you know, as we as we spoke about, uh, you know, I I came into the military right at the beginning of the age of terrorism. And with physical attacks, even where people aren't wearing uniforms, you still get bodies or prisoners afterwards. But in a post-attack forensics in in cyber, it just doesn't work that way. Sophisticated attacks can uh, our attackers, I should say, can delete logs on their way out. Mm -hmm. There's other kinds of things, dynamics at play, especially now. You know, ransomware and these other kinds of techniques can mean that an organization is suddenly trying to balance recovering their operations versus, you know, preserving all the evidence so they can try and determine what happened afterwards. And a lot of times, if if your operations are completely brought to a standstill, that's that's a tough thing to say. Oh, wait a second, we got to keep all these boxes intact because we need to be able to to, to you know crawl through these for the next several weeks and figure out exactly what happened here. No, sometimes you just have to wipe and move on and, and get and get things back. And, you know, that's just a it's just another, I'd say, particular aspect of, of these kinds of things that don't, you know, necessarily have good historical precedent in the kinds of, yeah you know, international conflicts we've dealt with before. Um, in terms of the other indicators, um, you know, besides, again, so the traditional intelligence gathering, um, the TTPs are always very important. You look at what the different APTs, for example, are good at and what common elements of the campaigns they're they're running. And that seems to be a lot of what informed this one that, you know, they basically follow these seven steps to get IP out. And then mm -hmm. afterwards they do these eight things and they all tend to, you know, the, these attacks all have a very similar way in which lateral movement occurs or privilege escalation occurs. And so there's, there's a lot that goes into that, you know, research from years ago that I did as an academic looked at malware families. We looked at common elements in terms of code or, or binaries or compiler configuration, things like flags, some of the tools or language packs used. I think there was a time where that was actually more helpful for attribution than it is today. And I think a lot of the reason for that is the rapid proliferation of, of malware marketplaces mm -hmm. that the dark web and cryptocurrencies enable so that exploits and payloads aren't as helpful for informing provenance of attacks as they used to be just because they get captured and reused. And they're just robust communities that recycle these things. Or um, open, the other open thing is, sourced in some cases, right? And kind of you're, Yeah, you know, you're right exactly now. right. Some of these yeah. new things, you know, we looked at like the print nightmare stuff. I mean, there was a working POC of that that was anybody could download. You know, other things, I mean, again, I, I've, I've heard in the past, you know, there, there was metadata that was sometimes useful. You know, this is where you hear about like Russian language settings, you know, the North Korean business hours. And, you know, one reason that makes this tricky, I think when you sometimes talk to people that perhaps haven't 
haven't dealt with this deeply is they just well, just the source. Where's this thing coming from? You know, IP is open. Like, why can't you just look mm-hmm. at that? And mm-hmm. the reason, of course, is that pivoting is so common. It mm-hmm. takes advantage of jurisdiction limitations as well um, and the scope of investigatory bodies. And so anyone that's going to attack the U.S. is going to pivot from somewhere overseas and then probably somewhere inside the U.S., and, and then attack. And they probably even do that, you know, even as many as a dozen times of, of those pivots. And that way, now you have the FBI that has to coordinate with the NSA because one can look at international things and only and the other can only look at domestic things in order to help preserve, um, you know, the privacy of, uh, of you know, Americans. That, that kind of thing can make can be very difficult as well. I think another big indicator that has gained a lot of popularity is the kind of the motivation and strategic objectives. This, I, I think, is... I, you know, actually, Jay Healy, who's a friend of mine, I think was one of the earliest to write about this years ago. And I think that work and others has informed, you know, the the doctrine here as well. And that if, you know, that this fixation on attribution is is probably not well served, that if mm-hmm. we if we fixate on attribution, we're never going to find those smoking guns in cyber. And so it's better to look at motivations and what you know, states have to gain by this, and in a sense, Jay's, Jay's thesis was more about um, not looking at who did it, but more who is to blame. And there was, you know, he kind of he formalized this idea of a spectrum of state responsibility, from you know the states actually sponsoring it all the way down to the state sort of coordinates it. And I think there's elements of, you know, certainly it seems like many of these attacks recently, the the Chinese, for example, seem to be actually sponsoring, whereas yeah. you know the Russian states, it may just be more condoned. Um, right. But, you know, that there is still some responsibility that that comes into that. And I think that that's a useful way to think about it as well. It's, I think, in a lot of ways, reminiscent of, of kind of the early Bush doctrine with with the, the way terrorism was addressed that, hey, you know, we realize that perhaps these, you know, these are their affiliations that, you know, this isn't the government necessarily, but there is a, you know, an incubation that's going on here. And so, mm-hmm. you know, someone needs to answer for that. And I do think that that work has really informed the way we respond to these things as well now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think it is any disincentive to these nations to have these kind of informal or even formal relationships with these groups if they're getting called out as they are, as they were certainly by the Department of Justice today? As an observer, anecdotally observing and seeing the news, it sure doesn't seem that way. I, I mean, it seems like that, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, to be honest, it doesn't seem like we're discouraging anybody at all. I kind of think of it as like an analog to the sort of the nuclear era, right? Where, you know, we, even with like ballistics, you know, with missiles and stuff, there were years where, you know, it was difficult for nations to figure out, you know, if a missile was coming and where it was launched from and, and, you know, over decades and trillions of dollars, you know, we developed the ability to, to spot those launches, you know, when they happened, where they happened um, with satellites and stuff like that. But, but that took huge investments um, and it strikes me that, you know, kind That's of still a kinetic effect, by the way, you know, there's yeah. still, there's still a lot that, you know, exists in the real world that drives that kind of observation and attribution, uh, you know, missiles, when they're launched, the cyber satellites detect them, they have to come from somewhere, you know, it's hard to, you know, for, you know, whoever to deny that happened when it came from their sovereign land, you, it's so much more difficult with attribution in cyber. Right. And yet maybe we're in the process now of developing some of those capabilities, you know, the, the problem drives the, drives the research and development. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and so on. So when we, when we talk about um, these actors and, and uh, you know, uh, along with the, um, 
release on the charges from the Department of Justice. Um, U.S. CERT released um, some updates to their uh, TTPs, you know, uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures um, for this group, which is has uh, is is uh, APT forty is the actual um, group affiliation of this. You know, when you look at it, um, for one thing, you know, pretty typical in terms of the reconnaissance and and initial access, uh, looking to uh, attack vulnerable VPNs, um, phishing emails, drive-by downloads and compromises of vulnerable application infrastructure. And then, as you said, living off the land, right? So use of PowerShell and other tools right, yeah. that are common administration tools. What can companies really do to get a grip on that, given that so many of these tools are, are dual use within organizations, might be used for completely legitimate reasons and, and, and pretty common? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a complex. One thing that we really believe in is, is securing identity infrastructure. Mm. I think that you're not necessarily going to be in a position to as a, as a private company to anticipate and defend against the the next zero day in a common application everyone uses like Microsoft Exchange. But if you if you at least have some ability to rationalize and understand how privileges are used in your environment and to make sure that credentials that are used are actually legitimate, then that can go a long way in, in defending against these things. Um, I mean, beyond that, I think the good security hygiene, the stuff that you hear all the time, you know, patch as much as you can, um, practice, uh, you know, least privilege, you know, just make sure that you, you've rationalized that everyone has the right level of access. Those things help a lot because, you know, as, 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 you know, good friend Colonel Williams in the, uh, in the air force used to say, you know, sometimes cyber is, is, is about being the, the fastest camper in bear country. And there is, <laughs> there is something to that, unfortunately, mm -hmm. like, I hate to say that you just don't want to be the lowest hanging fruit, but mm -hmm. you know, that, that may be there, there is something to that right now. And so certainly just the good hygiene stuff. And then I think really shoring up your, your identity to include, you know, the things that support that. So, you know, VPN access and making sure that you have some idea of, of, uh, you know, attributing VPNs, you know, access to, to, to individuals no, and, and entities, turning yeah. on MFA everywhere when you can, yeah. again, it's, it's the same things everyone tells you, those things do help and, you know, refreshing credentials, getting rid of credentials when people leave, um, those things matter just because I think more and more we find that the foothold that came in here, you know, often is something silly. It's often, yeah. you know, an old credential, yep. you know, the, the phishing emails and things. And so, I mean, listen, I think that, that one is, that one is tough. I, I mean, I've, I've seen the training programs, um, you know, places with big workforces and only takes one. And so, you know, that's again, why, why doing what you can for lateral movement is at least something that, that we really try and emphasize because we think that's, you can't do everything. And I think that's where the highest value impact yeah. is that, that organizations can have. Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcast, which features news, analysis, and discussion of the most important security topics of the day. You can also commission a custom podcast that highlights your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com sponsor. 
a couple of things I noticed on the, on the issue of evasion and kind of some of the strategies they use to cover their tracks. First of all, uh, use steganography um, to hide data in, inside files in, in GitHub. Also leveraging some Dropbox APIs to conceal data exfiltration, basically. Yep. That type of uh, activity is, is, again, really common. Uh, calls out to GitHub, Dropbox, other cloud-based services. Any easy answer to that problem for organizations? Again, I think that stuff is incredibly tough because organizations use those things. And so yeah. and so understanding the legitimate calls from the illegitimate ones are tough. I mean, for example, this is why I always thought DNS for such a long time was just the perfect C2 vector mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. everything uses DNS and everything's got to be able to talk to DNS. And so, and as you say with like, you know, steganography or these these kinds of hidden side channel methods that people that people have developed, I, I think it's incredibly tough. I mean, I do think that there, you know, I'll say upcoming solutions to to do these, there is promising work in AI and others that looks for, you know, very specific kinds of pattern recognition and can flag, um, you know, certain kinds of anomalies. But a, a lot of that is, you know, very specific to particular environments. And, you know, to say that something like that is consumable immediately off the shelf is, is just not realistic yet. And so I think that, that we as a defensive community have a lot more work to do there. Final question. You know, you look at the list of organizations and, and uh, well, not organizations, but the types of data this group was after. And it is a pretty broad list, everything from, um, you know, contracts that might be um, uh, used to uh, award big infrastructure projects to um, medical research and, and, and so on. How do you know if a group uh, affiliated with the, you know, People's Liberation Army uh, might be interested in what it is that you're doing? And if you suspect that they might, um, what should you do? I mean, I think that there's tremendous interest in general IP all around. I think that, as you said, that there are certain kinds of things that are of particular interest. So anything national defense related, you know, I think energy, I think there was a lot of interest in the COVID Mm -hmm. vaccines. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, medical technology, I mean, I, I think it kind of runs the gamut. I think if you're doing interesting work, it's probably, you know, maybe a bit paranoid, but I'd say it's probably better to default to somebody's interested in that and to invest responsibly in, in cybersecurity programs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, make sure you have the right controls in place, make sure you have the right processes in place. Um, and I, I don't think that's a, that's not, it's not a, it's not a bad thing to do. I mean, I think certainly when you look at um, this, the, the safeguards one has to do for ransomware now, because I, virtually everyone's a target of that you know, a lot of those controls are not dissimilar. And so I think that what we're going to see now is, is, is cybersecurity is very much in the, in the common interest of all. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there was a time where perhaps there was, it was more acceptable for boards and others to accept cutting the corners to mm-hmm. um, make sure that they were, you know, maximizing margin or revenue. But um, I, I think now there's going to be more of an emphasis on on making sure that that data and and operations are adequately protected, and even if it's at the expense of some of those other things, I think that that trade off is going to be more acceptable now than perhaps it was a few years ago. And to your earlier point, uh, definitely don't assume that just because the uh, Department of Justice has issued a press release that the activity on the part of these uh, Chinese actors or Russian or what have you is is going to be uh, subdued in any way. I mean, as you said, I mean, we basically have been doing this since the beginning of the Obama administration, and. Yeah you know, again, as a, at least a, an observer that follows it, it sure doesn't seem like anything yeah. is, it doesn't seem like that this is deescalated or, no. or that, you know, the momentum is, has shifted any, you know, way here. Andrew Sell is always a pleasure and we will have you on again for sure. 
Well, Paul, listen, it was, it was a real pleasure to be here again. Thank you so much for having me and uh, look forward to coming again soon. Andrew Sellers is the Chief Technology Officer at Complex. Up next, Salesforce.com on Wednesday announced that it completed its record $27 billion acquisition of Slack Technologies. The deal, which adds Slack's digital messaging and collaboration platform to the Salesforce roster, is part of what CEO Mark Benioff called a digital headquarters that enables every organization to deliver customer and employee success from everywhere. Salesforce, which now employs more than 60,000 people, started more than 20 years ago. It was one of the first software-as-a-service firms, and what started as a play to democratize pricey customer relationship management, or CRM, tools, like those sold by SAP and Oracle, has evolved into a platform on which thousands of other applications and application developers operate. But as the recent attacks on SolarWind and Kaseya show, robust cloud-based applications and services are a double-edged sword for companies. They give access to powerful features affordably, but they can also introduce cyber risks. In our second segment of the podcast this week, we're joined by Wakas Nazir of the firm DigitSec, a startup that's focused specifically on securing Salesforce applications. In this conversation, Wakas and I talk about the growing risk of software supply chain attacks, as well as the kind of threats, risks, and attacks that Salesforce customers might face. Uh, My name is Wakas Nazir. And I'm the founder and CEO of Digitsec. Digitsec is a very exciting startup. We're addressing a problem with SaaS security specifically. And our product uh, deals with um, Salesforce. Uh, as many people know, Salesforce is a, a, a CRM platform uh, used extensively in the enterprises. Um, and our product basically assesses the security posture of Salesforce in a comprehensive manner. Uh, using four key technologies, and we're pretty excited uh, to bring this technology to the market. And talk about how you came to be focused on Salesforce as a platform and kind of your own journey uh, in the InfoSec space. Sure. So my um, journey in the InfoSec space started off, I was fortunate enough to, uh, for my very first job, to to consult with uh, Microsoft. And this was in the early days of uh, trustworthy computing, um, the secure development lifecycle. So I was able to absorb a lot of that um, work that Microsoft was doing at the time to to really create robust and secure software uh, at a scale that Microsoft produces software. Um, so that was actually a very good um, exposure for me, training, training um, uh, experience for me. And as part of that, I was... Uh, in a team which was responsible for reviewing um, Microsoft applications before they were uh, put in production. Um, and as a result, I, I was uh, getting a lot of hands-on experience uh, doing application security reviews, source code reviews, penetration testing, um, things that I really enjoy. Uh, but as, part, as I was doing that, I was also realizing um, some challenges with the approaches uh, with building secure software. Uh, so as my career progressed, um, I you know, continued to consult and do a lot of uh, penetration testing type engagements. Uh, but then I came across Salesforce. Um, I started doing assessments for Salesforce customers, uh, partners, and, and ISV vendors. Uh, and I realized quickly that uh, a lot of the challenges Salesforce ecosystem was facing was similar to what Microsoft was facing. Um, mm-hmm. 
thought there was an opportunity to help them uh, address those. And that's where um, really Digitsic came into place. Hmm. Talk a little bit about that ecosystem. What does the Salesforce ecosystem look like and how does it work? I mean, obviously, Salesforce is the platform. um, But as you know, there are many, I don't know, thousands of companies that provide plugins and add-ons and uh, on top of that platform. How, How does that work exactly? Yeah, so Salesforce out of the box is a standard SaaS platform, um, and trust is their number one value. They uh, work on creating a very secure platform out of the box, uh, but they also allow um, their customers to change and configure and integrate Salesforce as they see fit. Uh, so it has become a very healthy ecosystem of a lot of uh, development and customization by third-party vendors. Uh, by in-house developers and what have you. So Salesforce started off as a SaaS, but it is more like a a platform as a service now. Mm. Um, There are uh, robust um, uh, uh, third-party app um, integrations available, much like we have for uh, App Store and iOS uh, for business applications, which Salesforce supports through AppExchange. So customers now can download third-party applications, integrate uh, Salesforce into their core systems, write their own custom code on top of it. So all that customization uh, from a security perspective can also increase uh, the attack surface and also the ability to uh, make mistakes from a security standpoint, which could be costly. For Digisec, when you're talking about Salesforce security, you're working with that ecosystem um, of providers, not so much with the core Salesforce platform. And other, or is, is that accurate? Exactly. So if you see a lot of these SaaS platforms, there are things that the platform is responsible for, and same is the case with Salesforce. Uh, they're responsible for creating a, a secure platform for their for the customers, um, and anything on top of that that the customer does themselves and has control over, for example, uh, permissioning or custom code that they write or the integrations that they make, the customers are really responsible for those. Um, and so we're working with Salesforce customers to make sure that when they make these customizations, uh, they don't open themselves up to security bugs and vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. So talk about what what you're finding out there as you're working with these uh, with your customers who are Salesforce, Salesforce um, you know, companies that are developing on top of the Salesforce platform. What are some of the main security faults and flaws that you're finding? Sure. So we're seeing that um, many companies are coming at it from uh, a perspective of catching up. Uh, they've been developing on these on Salesforce for a while now, and they've not really looked at it from a risk or security perspective. But now that they see this as a strategic platform within the enterprise, um, they are starting to look at security, compliance, and things like that. And what we're observing as we're doing a lot of engagements is that uh, there are levels on which um, each enterprise is, but most of the time the security hygiene is is, is lacking, um, and we find like a very common misconfigured applications which are you know potentially leaking or exposing uh, business critical data, at some at times sensitive data on the web. And so we're seeing that they were operating in this state sometimes for years. So that's, you know, particularly concerning that uh, they 
mm. what is insecure state and not only just due to a recent change but something that was put in like years ago mm-hmm. uh, and that's what we're seeing and realizing is that there's a bit of catch up that needs to be done uh, to come to a sort of a baseline where they can start really um, addressing security from the get go because it was sort of missed in the beginning mm-hmm. because of the the assumption that you shared is like when you start using these platforms you know you don't really need to to focus on security uh, the vendors got it and then they when they come around to it they've made so many changes that it becomes a bit of a challenge to address all the things that they've done over the years so that's what we're observing um, but it, it's an interesting challenge for us and for the customer to address and then get it right so are these run of the mill um, shoddy application security, you know, SQL injection and cross-site scripting and those types of issues? Or are they the kind of lazy cloud problems, you know, insecure, you know, storage containers, uh, you know, from for backup or logs or, or other data that's exposed? Like what, what types of problems do you find? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, one of the things that we found as we were addressing this problem is with Salesforce, there are the run-of-the-mill web app issues, like you mentioned, like SQL injection. It's called SQL injection in Salesforce, um, authorization bypass, uh, things like that. But also, you can configure uh, just like you would uh, another uh, cloud provider. So it's actually both types of issues that we find. And that's why uh, sometimes when companies are looking at securing a platform or a service, they're not looking at it holistically. They may be just looking at, hey, this is if you get the configs right, we're pretty okay. Mm-hmm. Or if you get the source code okay, we're okay. You know, that kind of approach. And that is actually something that we found is not particularly effective for a platform like Salesforce because you can not only make um, application-specific vulnerabilities or mistakes, but you can also make misconfigurations and things like that, which can potentially expose your data, much like, you know, an AWS S3 bucket uh, with public, you know, read can. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting dynamic environment in which um, there's a lot of attack vectors. And and unless you look at it holistically, uh, you're bound to to miss something that is of critical nature. What do we know about the threats to Salesforce applications and Salesforce customers? Is there evidence that the bad guys, as it were, uh, have taken notice of this population of companies? There is. So we, um, we've seen a few you know, public exploits as, re- as a result of misconfigurations and ex- you know, bugs specific to Salesforce deployment. But what we're also seeing and noticing is this trend in finding one flaw to exploit many enterprises. And if you look at it from that perspective, Pretty much all of the SaaS platforms meet the bill. Yeah, uh, well, we just so, saw this with with Kaseya, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, if anything, that's an indication that there will be added focus on platforms like Salesforce um, from a security perspective, where uh, you can, you know, potentially invest in finding one flaw, but then impact thousands of enterprises as a result of it. And uh, that's something that we were observing as well with a lot of SaaS platforms. Okay. And for our listeners who might be um, in companies that are developing on top of Salesforce, what's some low-hanging fruit that they can pick from a security standpoint? 
I think uh, the um, the starting point that I typically recommend everybody is to um, utilize is the platform allows you to quickly assess like common misconfigurations um, that you may have. So I highly encourage people to utilize that basic utility to kind of address the low-hanging fruit, uh, if you will. That's within Salesforce itself. Within Salesforce itself. Um, the second is that we also provide a free assessment for the platform. So if you were curious about your posture and your current state, we do allow um, a trial so that you can quickly assess all aspects of the security and then um, see if there's value. If if it turns out that you're doing great, then perhaps you already have all the controls in place. But if you see that there is actually things that you're missing or things which are of critical nature that need to be addressed as part of your development, then you can make that case. The key element of securing any system is to start thinking like an attacker. Um, many builders don't think in terms of how my system will be attacked. And that's why sometimes they um, address things which uh, may be of trivial nature, but they don't get the ability to address the bigger problems. Uh, so if there's any you know, effort being made on security from a developer or an admin, if they can start thinking like an attacker, I think that will go a long ways into building secure systems and uh, secure platforms. Uh, so if there's anything that you know I can give as a piece of advice to anyone uh, would be is like to start thinking like your adversary and then you'll start to build a better, more secure, robust platforms. Indeed. Fakhasa Nazir of DigitSec, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. It was a pleasure, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. Fakhasa Nazir is the CEO of the firm DigitSec.